Welcome to the New England Law Review podcast. My name is Chelsea Carlton. I'm the executive online editor for the Law Review. And today I am welcoming a guest, Professor PJ Blount, who is currently a postdoctoral researcher at the University of Luxembourg. He's also an adjunct professor at the LLM in Air and Space Law at the University of Mississippi School of Law. He holds a Juris Doctorate from the University of Mississippi School of Law, an LLM from King's College London, and a Master's Degree and PhD in Global Affairs from Rutgers University. Thank you for joining us today, Professor Blount. Thanks for having me. So you actually have a forthcoming article with our law review that we're very excited about. It's entitled Outer Space and International Geography, Article 2 and the Shape of Global Order. And the article generally focuses on the ambiguity of Article 2 and of the Outer Space Treaty and the ability to extract the vast resources of space. Um, so in your article, you mention how the initial reaction that many people have to the concept of space law in general, Garnels are a likely response of, you mean like, who owns the moon? Why do you believe these initial reactions are so grounded in the idea of ownership? I, I, I think this is a sort of an interesting thing, and, and I'll add to that. I, I When I first started doing space law, I'd sit at the back of panels, and I'd hear people get livid and very angry about this exact topic of you know whether or not you can own resources on the moon, and I just always sat in the back, and I thought, why do people get so angry about this one topic? I mean, it's it's the, the one thing where you used to be able to space conference know you could get some scholars to fight. Um, and so I began to, to think about this, and it's I think it's because property really does to some extent go to the core of how we organize ourselves legally. Um, if you think about you know, the two main systems of sort of um, Western liberalism and capitalism and then um, socialism and communism, those are really grounded um, in how society sees property. And so I think that when, when somebody hears that you're in space law and they, they give this reaction of, well, does that like who owns the moon? I think it's very much kicking into this, this sort of um, basic understanding that we have of the law that the law is the guarantor of property. Right. And you also speak about how the Outer Space Treaty is that space is the province of all mankind is this concept that's rooted in. Um, and it doesn't fit comfortably in the common Lockean concepts of nature. And so how do you feel these claims of real property are likely to be treated under Article 2 if there were to be these claims? Well, so, so the... the the real crux, I think, of Article 2, and let me just go ahead and read Article 2 so that's, that's out there, this text. It's, it says that outer space, including the moon and other celestial bodies, is not subject to national appropriation by claim of sovereignty, by means of use or occupation, or by any other means. And this sort of simple phrase in this treaty is, is sort of a, also a, a central phrase to this treaty. And I think that one of the big problems that we have with it is it's very ambiguous. What does appropriation mean um, in this, this cons or within this framework? And um, I argue that, that we, look, we can read the word appropriation to mean the not claiming of territory. So states aren't allowed to go out and claim the moon as territory. And this fits very cleanly with international law as it was emerging at that time, right? We had just um, gone through World War II. We'd adopted the UN Charter. And the UN Charter sets a geography for the world of states and borders. And it tries to contain states within those borders. And this is very specifically meant to be sort of anti-imperialistic in, in terms of what it does. Um, when Sputnik goes up in 1957, we have um, what I, I sometimes refer to as a new spatial reality. We have this moment where um, we've cut up the whole world. We know where that 
every part of, of the, the terrestrial sphere either fits into a state um, or something that is in the future going to be a state such as occupied territory or it's a global commons and so we, we have this moment of well we've got all this new space to fill um, how are we going to fill that and I think that that's what article 2 is about it's very much about keeping states from going on imperialistic missions off into space which might breed conflict um, but you mentioned you asked specifically about real property um, um, and I think that's where it gets interesting, is um, if we think about real property, um, the, the Lockean concept of real property says that property comes from um, your ability to improve it, right? But that's property in, in what he calls a state of nature. Um, that's one that is, exists outside the law. Um, and so once we have the state built around property, the state becomes the guarantor of property. So in the United States, you don't own property unless um, you filed the deed with the local government. That is the state saying that you own property. Um, and so there's this problem with when it comes to real property within the Outer Space Treaty is if there is no state that has territorial jurisdiction, um, then how can we have a system of real property rights? Um, but let me just go ahead and pitch a little further. I know I've been babbling on, but but the real question then becomes one of, of rights and resources, um, which is more like a chattel property right, and whether or not somebody can go and pick up a rock and maybe not own the ground underneath that rock on the moon, but own that rock itself. Right, and speaking of picking up rocks, um, one of the really interesting parts of your article speaks about the states that have been careful to disclaim notions of conquest when they actually have gone and you know, extracted some celestial material from space. Um, and this is in accordance with international law in Article 2. Could you speak briefly about how these states have been and their activities to be careful about this? So, so we have a, a handful of states that have gone into space and actually um, landed on celestial bodies. And, and um, the first of these was actually the Soviet Union, and they had uh, a series of missions called the Luna missions. Um, and, and kind of one of the, the fun ones that they do is they send up a, a metal sphere, um, and they, they crash it into the surface of the moon, and the sphere breaks apart, and there are little medallions on it that say, um, you know, the... the USSR on it, Soviet Union. Um, yeah, of course it says it in Russian. Um, but the, uh, the, the this this smashes apart, and there are little emblems, symbols of the state, all over all over the moon. Um, but they, in their diplomatic. Um, you know, work with this, made it very clear that they were not trying to claim the moon by doing this. And then you have, of course, the example of the Apollo missions, um, where we went and landed people on the moon. And, um, you know, actually, this is really relevant right now. There's, there's a, a little controversy um, brewing about the new movie that's coming out, and they don't show the flag being put on the moon. Um, and, and it's, but it's a very interesting moment for, I think, um, you know, American politics. We put this flag on the moon, which looks very much like Columbus landing in the new world and, you know, planning a flag for Spain. Um, but at the end of the day, we, we disclaim any sovereignty from that flag. We've just kind of marked that we've been there, but on the, um, on the lander itself, there's a plaque that says, we came in peace for all mankind. And so states have been very careful not to claim sovereignty and, and to do this very specifically because um, Article 2 does not allow them to claim sovereignty. Right. Interesting. Um, and so also when you're talking about there's the um, commercial entities that are currently raising capital to actually mine celestial bodies. Um, and there has been some legislation passed by both the United States and Luxembourg to comfort investors because of these property issues that we have discussed. 
Um, do you expect that we'll see more legislation like this going forward? And if you know a company were to actually mine these resources, what do you think the reaction of the international law community would be? I think, uh, I'll answer that first question, I think that, that you're definitely going to see more legislation like this coming out. I know um, I've talked to a couple of people in, in different states and they're working on legislation that is going to address this issue. Um, we don't know exactly how they're going to address it, but it's going to be addressed. Um, now, the, the, I, I think the, the interesting thing about um, this legislation is that it's both the laws, both the U.S. law and the Luxembourgish law, are very careful to, again, disclaim any sovereignty. Um, they are not attempting to grant real property rights in terms of you own a plot of land on celestial bodies. They're saying that you can um, pick up a resource and own that resource. Um, and I actually think that that's very consistent with what Article 2 says. Um, and so I think that these laws are important because for a long time we've heard these companies um, say that well you know, the law is unclear and so that's a problem we can't get investors into our business scheme without um, legal certainty to some extent and so now I would say that they have um, legal certainty um, the United States uh, law does not really lay out a, 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 an authorization and supervision process yet but I think that it will at some point um, but they have launch capability the Luxembourgish law lays out an authorization and licensing um, process. So you, you actually have a symbiosis there. You could um, get licensed and authorized by Luxembourg and launch on a U.S. launcher and, and you can get up there and you would be actually able to mine these um, these celestial bodies. And I don't think that there's a problem with international law in states passing these laws or these companies doing this. I do think um, that there is an, an issue going forward of uh, avoiding a race to the bottom, so to speak. Um, we don't want a situation wherein any state is just passing a law that says you can, um, and we have companies uh, going up there and not um, keeping with basic security and safety standards that are needed, right? The, the, the real danger here um, is that we have two states that aren't communicating with each other. They both have commercial companies that are trying to lay claim to the same celestial body, and you end up with an accident there. Um, and so I think that the, the, the real danger is right now the, the international community's inability to effectively coordinate these um, these types of operations and I think that's the next big challenge is making sure that that can be done great well is there anything else that you would like to add or any current um, law that you're interested in further about the space law so, I, I mean, uh, space law is something that, that I do uh, a lot of, and I, I work a lot in the security realm, which is where I kind of come from when I look at resources. I'm thinking about it um, from the, the, the realm of national security. And so um, a, lot of, a lot of people that you look at and read on this topic are very much looking at it from um, a commercial aspect and, and how we do it commercially. And so I would, I would you know, guess lay out as a caveat on my view that, that I am coming at this as somebody that's thinking about um, that idea of international peace and security and how to avoid conflict in space. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, we are excited to have your article being published in Volume 52, Issue 2. And again, it is called Outer Space and International Geography, Article 2 in the Shape of Global Order. Thank you so much, Professor Blau. Thanks for having me.